Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Only the video can tell the story of what really happened to Tyree Nichols. The lead starts right now. Now, I still haven't had time to grieve yet. I'm, I'm still dealing with the death of my son. A mother's pain and calls for justice for Tyree Nichols ahead of the release of video described as horrific and even sickening. This hour, what the public can expect and what Nichols' parents call the most telling part. Plus, more disturbing video out today showing the hammer attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, and the split second police had to intervene. And a consequential vote today setting the tone for the future of the Republican Party. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown. Jake Tapper is on assignment. And we start today with our national lead, heartbreak grief and calls for justice in Memphis, Tennessee. And just a few hours from now, the city is set to publicly release videos of Tyree Nichols' arrest. The 29-year-old died three days after a confrontation with police on January 7th. An encounter Nichols' stepfather, who has seen the video, described as a brutal beating. I saw officers hitting on him. I saw officers kicking him. One officer kicked him like he was kicking a football a couple of times. And, uh, but the most, the most telling thing about the video to me was the fact that it was maybe 10 officers on the scene and nobody tried to stop it. The five officers charged with murder and Tyree Nichols' death have now all been released from jail on bond. And Nichols' mother tells CNN despite losing her son, she doesn't hate those officers and prays something positive will come from her son's horrific death. They have brought shame to their own families. They brought shame to the black community. I just feel sorry for, I feel sorry for them. And God is not going to let any of his children's names go in vain. So when this is all over, it's going to be some good and some positive because my son was a good and positive person. CNN's Sarah Seidner starts off our coverage from Memphis where Tyree Nichols' family is demanding the police department make immediate changes. No mother, no mother, no mother, no mother should go through what I'm going through right now. The mother of Tyree Nichols, full of sorrow, but also filled with concern, knowing the release of the police video showing her son being brutally beaten by police after a traffic stop is about to be shown to the world. I've never seen the video, but what I've heard is very horrific very horrific and any of you who have children 
Please don't let them see it. You're going to see acts that defy humanity. You're going to see um, a disregard for life. All five of these fired officers are now out on bond after being charged with the murder of Tyree Nichols, stemming from a reckless driving stop that the police chief says her department still can't substantiate. It doesn't mean that something something didn't happen, that but the there's cameras. no proof. Nichols' mother and stepfather called for calm, but spoke of the horror that unfolded on the video during an exclusive interview with CNN's Don Lemon. It's still like a nightmare right now. They beat my son to death. He cried out for his mom. Yes. Yes, he cried out for me. Because I'm his mother. And that's what he was trying to get home to safety. I saw officers kicking him. One officer kicked him like he was kicking a football a couple of times. And uh, there was maybe 10 officers on the scene. And nobody... Try to stop it. Soon, the public will be able to judge it for themselves. Once you see the video uh, tomorrow or tonight, I guess, um, I, I think people can draw their own conclusions, but I don't imagine there'll be a lot of perceived ambiguity. Are you saying in plain English that Tyree Nichols was beaten to death by these officers? Yes, I don't want to get into characterizing the video, but clearly the charges do say that uh, the officers beat him and caused his death and are responsible for his death. A defense attorney for Desmond Mills Jr., one of the five former officers charged with murder, says his client has regrets. He is remorseful that, that he is attached to anything like this, that uh, he is involved or connected to the death of somebody. I caution everyone to, to look at this with an open mind and to treat each of these officers as individuals. I don't care what color police officer, but by them being black, it hurt the black community. They have brought shame to their own families. They brought shame to the black community. You hear that absolute um, sorrow uh, in her heart. She says she really hasn't been able to uh, to deal with this, uh, to process this yet. Uh, it's still very much uh, something that she is going through. She does not want to see the video, as you heard, and she warned parents they should not have their kids watching it. Uh, we were able to get a little bit more details about the video, that it is probably going to start with the body camera of an officer who comes up to the scene as it's already underway, the very first stop uh, where you'll see uh, Nichols and officers together and then you'll see some tower cam video of them uh, as he runs away and they catch up to him and that is where you're going to see this brutality. I lastly want to, to say something about what the family and their attorneys have said about this Scorpion unit, which is a unit that was supposed to be a crime suppression unit uh, here in Memphis because of the crime issue and they would go after people for potential guns in their cars, uh, for things like, um, you know, stolen cars. Uh, they were after uh, folks for stuff like that to try and stop uh, crime from being going on the rise. But what they're saying is that unit, because some of these officers were members of that unit that was an undercover unit, that that unit needs to be disbanded and it needs to be disbanded immediately. Uh, we have not heard anything from the police department or the city council on that, but the city council member told me today that if there is evidence that they are uh, going after people and oppressing them, that they, he will think about doing just that.
Cam. All right, Sarah Seidner, thank you. We're going to discuss the Scorpion unit and this panel here to discuss retired Los Angeles Police Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, Captain Ron Johnson, a former incident commander in Ferguson, Missouri, and Dr. Jeff Warren, a member of the Memphis City Council. Dr. Warren, you saw portions of the videos of Tyree Nichols' arrest just this afternoon. And I know we're all sort of bracing, those who haven't seen it, bracing to see it. How do you feel after what you saw? Pretty much like I thought I'd feel before I went to look at it. Just incredibly saddened and disheartened. Uh, much like all of Memphis is feeling about right now. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, I, I heard about this case before it got any national attention from a friend of Tyrese who called me and said, look, Dr. Warren, something's very wrong here. You need to make sure that it's investigated. And I, I think that our police department and our DA have gone out of their way to be transparent and to make sure that we can try to get justice served for Tyree and his family. Yeah, the police chief there in Memphis, C.J. Davis, said the video showing the beating of Tyree Nichols is as bad, if not worse, than Rodney King in 1992. How do you prepare yourself and your community to see that the full extent of what happened? I think everyone just needs to know it's horrific. You know, we've had a lot of horrific things happen here in Memphis. Um, you know, we're the capital of the Deep South, so we had lynchings here for decades and years. Uh, we were where Martin Luther King was assassinated. So, I mean, we as a community are used to grieving, unfortunately, in these horrible situations, which in my mind uh, sort of point to where we still have sort of situational or, or we have societal racism that make it okay for us to be able to harm and hurt young black men. Uh, and here we had black men doing that. So it's it's sort mm-hmm. of like, it's different. If, if a white man had been doing this, you'd say, well, this person should have just complied with the officers. We're not hearing that now, but it's the same sort of excuses we make for not having our systems try to address this specifically. And in Tennessee, we can't even talk about critical race theory. It's been made illegal by our state legislature. Okay, so so let's, I'm going to talk actually about what you, the point you just raised, and I'm going to go to Sergeant Dorsey on this. Um, one of Nichols' family, uh, actually, uh, Don Lemon actually asked the chief about the role of race in this incident. And as we know, five black officers, a black victim, and your predominantly black community there in Memphis, uh, Tennessee. I want to listen to her response, then talk about it on the other end, Sergeant Dorsey. It takes off the table that issues and problems in law enforcement is about race, and it is not. It's about human dignity, integrity, accountability, and the duty to protect our community. What do you make of that, Sergeant Dorsey? Well, we can't take race off the table because certainly race plays a part in this, but I've often said that, you know, these uh, officers that we see, uh, that we're gonna see on this video are much like all the others, they're drunk with power. These are uh, black men who now bleed blue, something I never did, who have bought into the system, who are locked into that police culture. And once they stopped uh, this young man and engaged him, they realized that they had gone far too far and then began to think about how to manufacture uh, probable cause for this detention. So they came up with reckless driving. He was able to get away briefly after having been maced, according to reports. And then they catch him again and do what officers do sometimes at the end of a foot pursuit. 
they punish you. This wasn't about compliance. This wasn't about taking him into custody, clearly, because they spent three minutes, according to reports, beating Mr. Nichols unmercifully. And so I think these are officers who are drunk with power. These are young officers who probably had no business on a specialized unit like this Scorpion team. And the name alone gives me reason for pause. Scorpion? Why would you want to call yourself that? And so I agree this unit needs to be disbanded immediately. And those officers and everyone they've touched in their career needs to be looked at. Ron, I want to get your reaction to something else we heard from Chief Davis about the officers involved in this confrontation. Let's listen. What I saw in this video was more of a a groupthink sort of mentality. Mm. You know, a groupthink and and no one took a step to intercept or, you know, intervene. And that's why the charges are as severe as they are. And after the death of George Floyd, we should know many police departments implemented these policies that um, if, if an offer, officer witnesses anything that's against policy, that where there is wrongdoing, they should step in and do something. Clearly, that didn't happen in this case. What do you think about this groupthink mentality that we just heard from the chief? Well, I think she's absolutely right. And I think when we've talked about should this unit be uh, disbanded or suspended, I think that answer is yes. Uh, because the chief has even said there's groupthink there. And so there's groupthink between these five. Apparently, there were at least up to 10 officers there who did not intervene. And so there seems to be that groupthink. And this is a cultural issue that must be addressed. You know, one thing that I talk about from a consulting standpoint is we have to teach a leadership, leadership at the lowest levels. So when we have situations like this, someone will step up and be a leader and have mm-hmm. responsibility. How do you and combat so, you know, yeah, just, just to follow up on that, I mean, how do you combat groupthink in police departments? Well, I think one thing you have to do when you have a unit like this and you have these young officers, you have to make sure you have a seasoned officer there that's out there monitoring that and supervising that and making sure things are, are being done in a proper way. You have to have alerts. You have to have alerts on how many incidents uh, uh, officers have had uh, as far as uh, use of force. And so you have these alerts that tell you that you have to monitor these units and look at their arrests when they're making arrests that involve use of force. You have to view those. And I think you, you have to have these conversations, but you talk about leadership or responsibility. It can't just be something that's written in a document. It's be something that's actually a part of your strategy and your mission that is a part of your daily conversation. Right. So I think when we look at this and you think the other officer talked about the name of the unit, I don't think we name units that that empowers uh, those officers that are, are part of those. All right. I'm going to bring in Dr. Warren on this because you've actually seen parts of the video. Does it reflect uh, this idea of groupthink where they stay in a part, standing together, help us better understand um, what you saw in that regard? And what would you like to see with police reforms moving forward in the wake of this horrific death? You know, one of the things that we have in Memphis, and I think the reason everyone's so sad, is that we've we've got an incredibly high murder rate. Uh, two years ago, we had 347 murders in our city, and we have this population of 630,000. To, to compare that to New York, where it's slightly less than 500 with a population of 8.6 million. So what our police, what our citizens want our police to be able to do is to help stop the murders and to stop people from killing each other. That's what this unit was initially designed to do. But as you look at this tape, what you can see is 
things got out of control and there weren't checks and balances that automatically kicked in. I know today our police chief said that we're doing a top-down search on uh, an evaluation of this unit to see what we can do to correct this deficiency and mm -hmm. to try to make sure it never happens again. And, and the police chief also mentioned that the department um, lacks supervisors. Sergeant Dorsey, um, what do you make of that issue that she raised? I certainly believe had there been a sergeant, uh, someone with some tenure on that police department there on scene, they would have properly manage that use of force. And so while they're conducting evaluations, uh, they need to also look at psychological evaluations. Police officers generally are given a psychological evaluation when they're hired and never again, unless and until they're involved in a deadly use of force. And so officers need to have their head cracked open every couple of years, looked into and make sure that everything is working properly. And if you find that you have an officer who doesn't have the temperament, the skill set, and or experience to do that job, there is no harm or shame in getting them off the police department or at the very least tying them to the desk as a police chief can do. All right. Thank you to you all. We appreciate it. Up next to another disturbing case and comments moments ago from former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi after recordings are released and the gruesome attack on her husband, Paul. Plus, a Friday night shooting at a synagogue in Jerusalem. CNN is live near the scene as new information comes in on this attack. In our national lead, new disturbing video released today in the brutal attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Video and audio show the break-in at their San Francisco home back in October. Here's CNN's Veronica Miracle. And a warning for you, what you're about to see may be hard to watch. Drop the hammer. Um, nope. Hey, 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 hey. What is Pardon going on right I'm not getting an answer on Body camera video shows police struggling with Paul Pelosi's assailant after witnessing the assault. Give me your hand. Give me your hand. Police responding to the Pelosi home around 2.30 a.m. on October 28th after Paul Pelosi called 911 reporting an attacker had broken into their San Francisco home. There's a gentleman uh, here just waiting for my wife to come back. Nancy Pelosi. Uh, he's just uh, waiting for her to come back. She's not going to be here for a day, so I guess we'll have to wait. The 82-year-old husband of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appears to try to signal the 911 dispatcher that he needs help without upsetting the intruder. Is the Capitol Police around? No, this is they, usually, they're, usually here, they're usually here at the House protecting my wife. He didn't tell me to put the phone down and uh, just do what he said. Then, before he hangs up the phone, the intruder interrupts. I'm a friend of theirs. The intruder, David DePap, has been charged with assault and attempted homicide, among other charges, and has pleaded not guilty on all counts. After his arrest, DePap told police he was out to get then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and, quote, other targets and repeated baseless conspiracy theories about Pelosi and Democrats spying on the Trump campaign. It's, it's just like a, an endless crime spree. It's like the whole four years until they were finally able to steal the election. He said he woke Paul Pelosi and was looking for his wife. Well, I was going to basically hold her hostage and I was going to talk to her and basically tell her what I do. And she told the truth, I'd let her go scot-free. If she lied, that would be great. DePap had previously posted conspiracy theories about the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol on his Facebook account. He told police. When I left my house, I left to go fight Jeremy. I did not leave to go surrender. 
Nancy Pelosi spoke with CNN's Chris Wallace about the attack one week ago. How's your husband Paul doing? He's doing okay. It's going to take a little while for him to be back to normal. Uh, I feel very sad about it because the person was searching for me and my dear husband, who's not even that political, actually. Paid, paid the price. Paul Pelosi underwent surgery after the attack for a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and hands. And he has been seen wearing a hat at events with his wife in recent months. She said she would not watch the video showing the attack. And I have absolutely no intention of seeing the deadly assault on my husband's life. And San Francisco police have been keeping watch over the Pelosi residence here in San Francisco. Now, this video and audio was released today because news organizations, including CNN, pushed for transparency and pushed the court to release that information. Uh, DePap's lawyers said that the release of all of this could irreparably uh, damage his right to a fair trial, but the court sided with the news organizations today. Pamela? Uh, another thing this video does is undercuts all those conspiracy theories that went around about this. Veronica Miracle in San Francisco, thank you. Well, up next, today's secret ballot with major implications for the Republican Party. Topping our politics lead, a new direction for the Grand Old Party? Well, not quite yet. Rhoda McDaniel was just, McDaniel, we should say, was just reelected as the chair of the Republican National Committee defeating her 11th-hour challenger, Harmeet Dillon, in a secret ballot vote today. Dillon is a conservative lawyer who worked for former Arizona governor candidate and election denier Carrie Lake and defended former President Trump in some of his most high-profile legal battles. CNN's Jeff Zeleny was at the RNC meeting today in Dana Point, California. So, Jeff, are Republicans there telling you they feel more united or divided after this vote? Well, Pamela, many Republicans are telling me they feel relieved that at least this chapter of this really family feud inside the party is over, at least for now. But there are still questions going forward about how united this party will be. But let's take a look at some of these numbers. The a vote came in just a short time ago and a pretty overwhelming victory for uh, Ronna McDaniel, who is running for an unprecedented fourth term. She got 111 votes out of the total of 167 members of the National Committee here voting. Harmeet Dillon from California, the lawyer, the member of the National Committee, got 51 votes. Votes and Mike Lindell, of course, the CEO of My Pillow, the election denier and Trump conspiracy theorist, got uh, four votes. So certainly an overwhelming majority, 66% of the vote, if you calculate it that way, for Ronna McDaniel going forward. And she talked about why you, why unifying the party is important going forward. Let's take a listen. Nothing we do is more important than making sure that Joe Biden is a one-term president. We have to be unified. We have to be unified in that effort. So this really has been just a discussion of if there are changes that should be made at the top of the Republican Party. Of course, she has presided over this party uh, through uh, three election cycles that have seen losses in the House, in the Senate, and certainly in the White House. She was the handpicked chairman of Donald Trump. He stayed out of this race, but he did comment just a short time ago calling it a big win for Ronna McDaniel. So certainly the party is trying to move forward as it looks on to 2024. But the question is, had they settled this score, had they settled this feud that's been going 
going on that is really quite unusual for a, a party election that normally is just simply inside baseball, Pamela. Yeah, exactly. Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. Uh, Sarah, things aren't really inside baseball when it comes to Trump, right? And Trump is a factor here, even though he really kind of stayed out of it for the most part. Both of these top candidates to lead the RNC, they supported Trump, right? They were backed, um, Ronda McDaniel, backed by Trump for many years now. Even though there was a fight over the future of the party, that was a, a big theme there. So Ronda McDaniel now reelected. How do you feel about the near-term future of your party? So I agree with her um, sentiment that we need to be unified as a party moving forward in order to beat um, Joe Biden in 2024. Um, however, I think that she needs to um, look at what happened in the midterms and learn from that. It seemed like um, she and others were more concerned with appeasing Donald Trump when selecting candidates who were extremist candidates, election deniers, um, poor quality, et cetera. And um, we need to learn from that because voters overwhelmingly rejected those candidates. And so in order for the party to perform well in 2024, we need to um, change the direction that we're going. And I'm not convinced that she's capable of it, but I certainly don't think that Harmeet Dillon or Mike Lindell were um, good options either. And Wait, so, not Mike Lindell, really? I yeah, shockingly. I think that that actually is such a crucial point. Everything that Sarah is saying is, uh, I think, a view that is probably shared by quite a lot of Republicans. But the alternatives weren't really an answer to that problem. And I think that probably by virtue of that, Ronna McDaniel sort of cruised into uh, into this re-election victory, and those problems remain. I mean, they still are dealing with a, a electoral problem in which they have pretty extreme elements kind of running the show, in, Trump included, and no one really speaking to the parts of the party that want to move beyond that and want to move on to more substantive things. Yeah. It did seem like a little bit of cognitive dissonance that the choice was, on the one hand, between Ronna McDaniel, who, as you said, Sarah, kind of uh, supported all of Trump's picks for these nominees, and then Harmeet Dillon, who was actually representing some of the most prolific election deniers like exactly. Carrie Lake. She was on the phone call with John Eastman when they were pushing the false electors scheme. And so that is where the Republican Party is right now, is reconciling between the far right and the far, far right, right? But then there were also these structural issues, which I think really are legitimate, mm -hmm. such as should the RNC be more decentralized and have more representation out in the states? Did they spend the money uh, the best way in the auditing and, and whatnot. There are also these structural issues that I think there will still be a debate about within the party. Yeah, yeah, Heidi makes a good point. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the average American is really would have had trouble deciding who actually in would be a good chair for that party that could unite independents and people in the more extreme wing of the party. It's important to realize that at the end of the day, to everyone's point, what we saw is that a number of people across that were that we were looking at denied the results of the election. They were involved in the different parts of January 6th and, and all of that, and their different conversations with President Trump going into it. So it was hard to tell the distinction in right. as they were choosing the chair of that party. And it's interesting, Dylan, you mentioned, you know, represented or she worked with Carrie Lake. Um, she has said she is not an election denier, but yet it's clearly propped up all these election denier candidates. You can say what you want, but look at your actions, right? Uh, she actually ran on changing the Republican messaging on mail-in ballots, um, which is just so interesting, given her background and given how it really started with Trump, right, criticizing it. And a lot of people blame 
his loss for the fact that well, he maybe she learned this. something from being down at Carrie Lake's election, because I can tell you, having been there, that really hurt her that so many Republicans well, were afraid to vote early or, or vote by mail. That was something that the party should have learned from. It's almost like putting a Band-Aid, though, on the larger problem. I mean, she's like, well, I'm not an election denier. I like mail-in voting. Right. But it doesn't really address the underlying problem, which is that there's been a two-year effort to you know, delegitimize elections in general, whether or not it's vote by mail or anything else. Uh, I, I, I just think that that, sort of, that was sort of like a small thing to sort of say, well, I'm not like the other folks. I don't think it really gets at what's really not working for the Republican Party, which mm-hmm. is that extremism as a message was rejected in November. And I don't see how Ronna McDaniel or Harmie Dillon or certainly not the My Pillow guy and none of them seem to be addressing that fundamental concern. And, and what about Trump, the role he plays in this, right? Mm-hmm. No, it seems like um, that Ronna McDaniel has kind of appeased Trump throughout her tenure as RNC chairwoman. And I'm curious to see if that will continue because, you know, voters rejected um, Trump's handpicked candidates in uh, the 2022 midterm elections. And so it, it seems like voters want other options. And I think that that's something that's growing in the party is wanting other choices for a Republican nominee in 2024. But obviously, you know, there have no been no other declared candidates yet. And so yet he still um, looms so large. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like I keep I've been hearing this for some time now. And yet he's always a big factor. Right. I mean, in this there's case, no question that part of the whole conversation has been this extreme wing of the party and Trump's role in it. And none of the candidates made it very clear what their relationship is going to be with the former president, what um, the role moving forward is with bringing in this extreme wing of the party and uniting it. People can use that rhetoric, but at the same time, none of the actions are lining up with how people want to move forward. DeSantis's endorsement of Dylan spoke to that anxiety because his only reason, you know, his self-interest in doing that was that uh, McDaniel had been handpicked by Trump. Now, that's not saying that she's going to remain loyal to him going Mm -hmm. forward, but that was the tension. And we actually have that sound if you want to listen to it and react on the other side. Uh, Ron DeSantis. I think we need uh, a change. I think we need to get some new blood in the RNC. Uh, I like what Harmeet Dillon has said about getting the RNC out of D.C. What do you think, Abby? Well, look, I mean, it didn't work. And if you look at the numbers, um, it was a pretty resounding victory for Ronna McDaniel. So I think that that actually kind of uh, does not speak to DeSantis's power as an insurgent. If you're looking mm-hmm. for clues as to whether RNC members are going to unite behind a non-Trump figure, DeSantis gave them an opportunity. It didn't really work, and I think that that's going to be significant. I'm going to turn to today's top story. We are all bracing for this video to be released uh, of the brutal police beating of Tyree Nichols. And CNN's Monty Raju asked Speaker Kevin McCarthy um, if the House would move on any policing legislation on Congress. As we know, a while back, there had been um, a bipartisan effort to reach an agreement on police reform that fell apart. Now it's back into focus. And McCarthy replied, quote, look, I think anything we do goes through committee. What do you make of that? Uh, I, it, it, he's saying that nothing is happening in the House on this issue. I think that that's the reality of it. And when you look back at um, the movement that, that had, had been on police reform, it originated in the Senate. You had Senator uh, Tim Scott on the Republican side working with Democrats on this. I, McCarthy, I think, understands that there's very little appetite among Republicans to deal with police reform, especially in a moment when they want to, you know, they, they want to weaponize the idea of crime and not deal with the other side of it, which is this clear case of police brutality. So Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think it, the, the fact that that sentence really had nothing else to it means that there's really not it much. Says what it, it says say, what it says. No Republicans voted, right, for the, no the George Floyd uh, Police Reform Act. No Republicans uh, voted in 2021 for it. Even in 2020, when they were negotiating the contents of the bill post-George Floyd, this has all been leading up to this standstill uh, in Congress. And really, um, you know, what we know is the president called the family today. We know that you know, that answer by Speaker McCarthy is basically saying, no, we're not going to take up this piece of legislation, which basically I think also he is trying to gauge where his caucus is. And so we can pretty much expect that they're not going to be um, clamoring at his door to do something about it. Yeah, this. but we'll be interested to see how much pressure perhaps this video puts on them to do something. But as we know, the pressure, it comes and then it goes. And then we- think about the fact there has been almost virtual silence by Republicans on this issue the video it will be as clear as day. This case is horrific as mm-hmm. it could possibly be. There's been really very little said by Republicans in general. So I do wonder if the pressure will actually I think it up. could, though, be a moment. And I may be wrong about this, but, I mean, let's all think back to Rodney King and, and yeah. what a watershed that was, mm-hmm. catching that all on camera. We're told that this was worse. This beating was From worse. the police chief. And but it, there and have it, been it, different it, accounts depending right. on who saw it, but yes. But also, I mean, let's talk about the elephant in the room here. We're, we're bringing in the issue of, we have been for years, of race and policing. And these were five black officers, which points to the fact that, yes, we need to discuss whether there was implicit bias going on here, too. But just much broader structural problems within the police force that something like this we haven't seen before. It's always been an issue of you know, white po- police officers and, and black victims. And I think this is a moment for us to talk as well about just structural problems within the police force and the quality of police officers that we have out yeah. there on the beat. And I, but, you know, the, the sad part is that that it seems to continue to be a one-sided conversation. Uh, there is the... the the philosophy on the Republican side is that this is a bad apple problem, not a structural problem. And I've yet to see any indication that they believe that there is a structural problem at hand here, uh, even though uh, this is, keeps happening all yeah. over the country. And yeah. all black officers, white officers, all yeah. over the country. And just because it, there's a structural issue here, which clearly, in my view, uh, there is. I mean, you look at all the different police brutality attacks, it doesn't mean that there aren't really good police officers out here who are protecting the community. We just saw the Paul Pelosi video attack where the police, you know, went to the house, jumped in to, to save Paul Pelosi. So, but, but you're right. I mean, the bottom line here is the, the systemic issue at play. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it. Be sure to catch Abby Phillip this, uh, this and every weekend on Inside Politics Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Up next to the scene in Jerusalem and a night of terror after a deadly shooting at a synagogue. At least seven people were killed at a shooting at a Jerusalem synagogue tonight. And this comes after the deadliest day in nearly two years for Palestinians in the West Bank. At least nine people were killed by Israeli forces on Thursday. CNN Sadas Gold is at the scene in Jerusalem. So tell us more about what happened. 
Yeah, Pam, I am in the Neve Yaakov uh, neighborhood in North Jerusalem. From what we understand happened is around 8.15 local. Uh, the shooting started just outside of a synagogue. It is Friday evening. It's Shabbat here, so a lot of people were at that synagogue. Uh, at least five men and two women were killed on the scene, and at least three others were injured, including a 15-year-old who is still in hospital. The attacker then got back into his car, started driving, before he actually ended up just past the intersection behind me. There are a few white cars behind me. One of those white sedans is actually the car that the shooter was in before he was encountered by police. There was a shootout and he was ultimately killed at the scene. Israeli police are calling this a terrorist attack. They say as far as they understand, the attacker is a 21-year-old Palestinian from an East Jerusalem neighborhood. And they believe that he was working alone, meaning that he didn't have any sort of uh, people who were working with him. As you can see, there is a very heavy police presence here. This is being described to me by the Israeli spokespeople, Israeli police spokespeople, as one of the worst terror attacks uh, targeting Israelis in recent years. The police presence here is so big. I mean, as we were driving up, the first thing that encountered us was a masked police officer with his, with his rifle drawn at us before we were able to identify ourselves as members of the media. And this comes uh, not in a vacuum. Within the last 36 hours or so, the situation in this region has been incredibly tense and violent. You mentioned what happened in Janine. A few hours after that military raid in Janine, which is Israeli military says was to target Islamic jihad militants who they say were about to carry out an attack. A few hours after that, at nightfall, rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel. Israel uh, responded with airstrikes targeting what they say were Hamas workshops. And then tonight we had this uh, attack. I, I mean, when I'm trying to think about the last time there was an attack, this, uh, this grave, it was probably back in 2008 when eight people were killed. Uh, but clearly the question right now is how will this new right-wing government led by Benjamin Netanyahu now respond? Pam. All right, Hadass Gold, thank you so much. Up next, what CNN found when we followed the money behind the He Gets Us campaign. If you're planning to watch the upcoming Super Bowl, you'll likely see a few ads about Jesus. CNN's Tom Foreman looks into who is behind the He Gets Us campaign and why some are calling this a PR stunt for right-wing politics. There was this controversial figure. Everywhere he went, people challenged him. The message is stark, arresting, and backed by $100 million. That's how much organizers say is behind this campaign to market Jesus as a patient, loving, inclusive cure for our divisive times. With the tagline, he gets us. Jason Vanderground. We're trying to unify the American people around the confounding love and forgiveness of Jesus. The campaign website is filled with phrases saying, Jesus called out the toxic religious and political systems, led the protest against the walls that divide us, and broke the chains that held women in bondage. Merchandise declares Jesus was a refugee and an immigrant. At first blush, it can all read like a stand against radical right-wing politics and related divisiveness. But the campaign pointedly says this is not an attack on anyone. It is an outreach to young Americans whom polls show are abandoning Christianity and other faiths at a historic pace. A lot of times when people look at Christianity, they see it as much more uh, unfortunate, uh, hypocritical, judgmental, kind of discriminatory. Add the fact that He Gets Us is funded by anonymous donors acting through a Kansas nonprofit linked to staunchly conservative causes, and it raises alarms for some skeptics, such as Chrissy Stroop, a former evangelical who now reports on religion. 
I believe the He Gets Us campaign is a uh, PR effort and, and website uh, strategically developed by right-wing evangelicals to uh, rope people in with inclusive-sounding messaging and get them plugged into local churches that will uh, eventually teach them that to be a Christian means to support right-wing politics. On top of that, this whole big money marketing of Jesus just makes some Christians uneasy. So take it how you will. The He Gets Us campaign is still moving forward. They plan to release two new commercials during the Super Bowl, where Ad Age reports some 30-second spots are now going for $7 million a pop. Wow. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. And coming up Sunday on State of the Union, a joint interview with Democrats Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, and Ilhan Omar. Plus, Republican Governor Chris Sununu. That is Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern and at noon. And up next in the Situation Room, CNN is on the ground in Memphis, ahead of the video to be released soon in the Tyree Nichols case. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 